get out of your comfort zone and do something. The world isn't going to come to you if you just sit at home and go, why? Why aren't I getting this information? Go out and get it. Okay, welcome back to the Marketing Playbook presented by Details Interactive. Here you'll take away three game-winning marketing plays every episode to take back to your team. I'm your host, Mark Friedman, and my career has been focused on direct-to-consumer marketing, direct mail, physical retail, and digital commerce. This is episode number 69, and today's guest is Ben Choder. Ben's career seemingly has been helping us prepare for the COVID-19 pandemic. He's been responsible for creative new technologies and companies around the digital streaming space. Whether it be helping the parents of a newborn show their new pride and joy to friends and family or helping companies communicate with investors, Ben has had numerous exits and he speaks to me today about what it's like to sell your company. He'll also tell us how long he's been training for a triathlon. It might be the longest training period on record. Ben's a longtime friend and it was nice to catch up with him again. Before we get started, a quick thank you as always to Max Branstetter of the Wild Business Growth Podcast for producing this episode. You can reach him at max at maxpodcasting.com to help bring your podcast to life. Let's open the playbook. Ready, break. Well, hello, everyone. Thank you for joining the Marketing Playbook Podcast. Today, I'm joined by Ben Choder, entrepreneur, author, founder, and longtime friend. Always one to think outside of the box, Ben has established himself as a pioneer of online communications through public and investor relations and interactive and streaming content. He's a leader with more than 20 years of experience in enterprise communications, social video, and digital health. He was the founder of Stream 57, which was acquired by West Corp, and Haptique, which was acquired by Social Health. As the former president of Notified, he ran the world's only communication cloud for events, public relations, and investor relations. He continues to transform the way people connect and share information. Ben, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you, Mark. That was very kind. Think about that. I've known you for like a really long time. It seems 20 years ago, probably a little more than 20 years ago, you were a shortstop on a softball team and I was the second baseman on a softball team. And look where well, we are now. Absolutely. And and it's, you know, our kids, the the audience, that one of the interesting things about Ben and I, we both have man and woman twins, boy and girl twins. I was going to say that. Um, and I don't know, Ben, if if you remember the first time that you and I actually met and you referred to softball. We were at Tamaqua's Park and we were getting ready to join this softball team. And um, we picked up a ball uh, to have a catch to warm up. And you and I started to talk and, hey, where are you from? Where do you live? Got kids. And, you know, very quickly we learned that we both had infants, uh, boy and girl twins. And in fact, our wives had already met um, in some play group. Crazy. And look at us now. Yeah, look at us now. Old and gray. Well, you're not yeah. so gray. <laughs> We're getting there. Well, anyway, th thanks for joining. Uh, th this is great. I think your story, um, especially for the folks that listen here, um, is is really impactful uh, and and covers a lot of the basis of, of things that people like to hear. One of the things we we try to do when we get these shows started is you know get some background, kind of the first story uh, from the guest. So give us some perspective where you grew up. Um, anything that um, you know in your early life that might have informed that you'd be this you know serial entrepreneur uh, and and what you've done in your career? 
So I grew up in Parsippany, New Jersey, and I think my childhood totally formed the entrepreneur I am. I grew up with two parents who were great parents in the fact that we always had food on the table and we always had clean clothes, but we didn't have a lot of money. They were not very motivated. They were not overachievers. They didn't work very hard. And at a really young age, I kind of realized this is not what I want in my life and I will do anything not. So my biggest motivator in my life was not to be what my parents are. And I have this whole theory on it, Mark. I think if you grow up with parents with a lot of money, you really have two ways of going. You either go, hey, I don't have to work so hard. My parents have a lot of money. Life's going to be taken care of. Or oh my God, I'm going to work harder than my parents because I want to make more than my parents. And I think the same thing, if you come from a family that doesn't have any money, you go, oh, this is my, you know, this is my, what I'm going to be. Nothing I could do to get me out of not having a lot of money. Or I am never going to be like this and I'm going to work as hard as possible and never to be in this situation. So my biggest motivator in life and still today is when I think of my childhood. Yeah, that's uh, it's so interesting. You, you'd be surprised how many people I speak to where, you know, especially if they're entrepreneurs, where they, you know, have used their parents as that role model. They were either entrepreneurs um, and and kind of got that idea of, yeah, I can start something and um, and then, you know, ultimately have that be my career. So that that's super uh, interesting. Um, you went to uh, University of Maryland, uh, same alma mater as, as my son, Evan. Um, so when you were there, did you kind of know what you wanted to do when you came out? We'll talk about stream 57. You started that, you know, a, a number of years after uh, school. So, you know, while you were there, what were you thinking? So I kind of knew all along, I wanted to do something in production, in entertainment, in communication, always knew I wanted to do that. And in University of Maryland, I was a general studies major, could not figure out exactly what I want to do, but I focused on radio, television, and film, had lots of internships in college with video production companies, concert production companies, and kind of fell in love with it. And even during my senior year, I had my first real job. I worked for Ron Delsner. Anyone on the East Coast knows he ran all the concerts at Madison Square Garden, the Beacon Theater, Jones Beach, the Pier Concert Series. And I kind of fell in love with music and production at an early age. And when I graduated, my first job was I was worked for a talent agency called ICM in their agent training program. I thought I was going to be a music agent. And I fastly learned that, you know, I'd be like 35 years old before I made an actual living. And again, coming from no money, I did not want to have to struggle that way. And I moved from, you know, booking bands to going into the side of production for enterprises because there was a lot more money in selling production and entertainment for um, corporations. And so those years post-graduation, while you were thinking about what you wanted to do, kind of run us up through, so you graduated uh, what year? I graduated in 1987. No, oh my God. I'm sorry, 88, 88. Well, you're a lot younger than me. Look at that, five years younger than me. So, you know, there's, uh, you know, quite a number of years before Stream 57. So you were kicking around. How did Stream 57, maybe tell us about that business and, and how it became to be? 
So I was running a production company, but before that, did a joint venture with a hospital association where we wanted to put in hospitals. I fell in love with streaming media. I was doing production and fell in love with video that was the size of a postage stamp. I said, this is the future. I had a moment in my life where I was like, this is must have been how it felt the first time someone heard radio and the first time they saw television going, nope, this isn't going to ruin the world. This is where the future is. The first time I saw internet on a computer, I was like, this is it. I am going to spend my life doing this. And one of my production clients just happened to be a large hospital association. And we had this idea to put rooms in hospitals. And this is like 1997-ish, 98. Um, we were going to put rooms in hospitals that enabled moms and dads 24 hours after they had a baby to have live broadcasts to their friends and family around the world. Think about it. Back then, there was no you know, there was no digital cameras, there was no Instagram. So you can't post a photo and share, you'd have to take a picture, send it in the mail, your family would get it 10 days later, seven days later, if they lived on the other side of the country. And we were in about, you know, close to 300 hospitals around the world up and around the country. And we built that. And then when I moved on from that, still love streaming media. And I wanted to start a production company and a company that does streaming. And we built our own technology. We were the first flash-based streaming company in the space. Think about the time when Mark Cuban was starting broadcast.com. We were about a year, year and a half after that company was started. He sold for a lot of money. We built Stream 57 in 2004 and um, specialized in producing live broadcasts for pharmaceutical companies, Fortune 5000 companies, financial service companies. And it was just like a dream come true. I got to do everything I loved, production, communication, and technology. And it was cool building a company from zero employees to over 100 employees and tens of million dollars in sales. It was pretty cool. I forgot about the uh, the hospital yeah, baby uh, press component, the, the baby yeah. press. Yeah. As you were talking, I'm like, oh, now I remember what exactly that was. Uh, that was pretty cool. So you you built this company from scratch and then ultimately uh, you exited. Um, so who, who bought that company? A company called West Corporation Intercall. At the time, they were the largest conference call company and call center company in the world. I don't know. Like- at 15,000 employees, probably something like that, a couple billion dollars in revenue. And they saw streaming and they acquired us. And being a founder said, oh my God, this is all we ever want to do. We built a company, you want to sell it. Now I'm part of a large organization that's going to really want to help us grow. And the reality is, guess what? They want your technology. And the moment you sell your company, it's not your company anymore. And founder syndrome is a really, it's real, right? Anyone out there who is... A young entrepreneur, when you build a company, it realized, what are you building for? Is it a lifestyle business? You're trying to sell it. And the moment, moment you sell it, it's not your company anymore. And my biggest thing is the day it comes to realization is the day the first time an employee comes into your office. And when you own the company and they say they're going to buy a new house and they're $10,000 short on a, you know, on their mortgage, you go, hey, I'll give you $10,000 as a bonus. I will give you $10,000 and take $100 a week for the next 100 weeks out of your check. Or you say no. The moment you sell your company, if that same employee walks into your office, there's only two answers you can give them. I'll give you a personal check or you fold your hands and go, there's nothing I could do. I don't own the company anymore. They can't do that for you because they'd have to do it for thousands of employees. That's the realization that it's not yours. And 
it takes an element of maturity. But with that said, I would have done it again over and over again without even blinking. But you got to learn that it's not your company and you grow and their dreams and visions of your organization are not always the same as yours. So the, the founder syndrome, you know, that you refer to, I, I haven't referred to it that way, but it's definitely a thing. And one of the questions, you know, that I ask founders, you know, often is about that separation anxiety that you have, um, you know, especially if it's a, you know, a longer term build before the uh, before the sale. So how how were you able to? Or were you able to turn it off? You know, Stream 57 was your first one. You didn't have the experience of no. having done that before. So how did that go for you? It went great because it was life-changing for me. And it put me in a world where I was in rooms with people I probably never would have had opportunity to be in rooms with. But it's a sobering that it's it's not your company anymore. And like all good founders, they signed me to a four-year employment contract and I lasted, I don't know, just under 20 months and then did another venture because it's not for everyone. And But I also have a lot of friends who have sold companies to large organizations or private equity. And 15 years later, they're still in that organization because they're at that point in their life. I think I was a little too young um, to sit there. I'm going to stay along or retire. So I needed to figure out, I needed to wait, I need to wake up every morning with a passion, right? I think all good founders, all good CEOs, we all wake up between 4 a.m. and 5 a.m. every morning. And there's, I mean, if you interviewed a thousand CEOs or founders, I bet you 70% of them say, yep, I want to wake up before everybody else, before everyone starts calling me, everyone starts asking me things. And it's just something in your DNA that you just got to keep on going. And that was me. As you think about these these businesses, um, you know, it's seemingly you've you've been able to solve a problem in the marketplace. So, how do you think about that? You know, what the problems are? How to then craft a business around the problem that you think exists and trying to solve? For me, it's all about innovation and disruption. When I go into a space like I got into streaming, it was the beginning. I wanted to catch the wave. I don't want to get into it afterwards. After we sold um, Stream 57 and we started Haptique, um, it was just the beginning of digital health. There was no Apple iWatch. There was no, you know, if you wanted a heart monitor, you had to strap it around your chest and have a big device to actually, you know, see your heart rate when you spun on a bicycle or and, something. And, and and we did that, right? When spinning yeah. became popular, we were sweating in that same gym room at the JCC. Yeah, exactly. And so saw this opportunity, I believed, we believed that you're going to walk into a doctor's office and he's going to go, hey, Mark, you have high blood pressure and you have high cholesterol. I'm going to prescribe you this medicine and this medicine. And we also thought you were going to prescribe you a blood pressure cuff for your blood pressure and a cholesterol adherence app for your, you know, for your cholesterol. So you can actually manage it. And that was, what is that? We had a patent on prescribing apps and we believed that every doctor was going to do it. And it's going to tie into their EMR and your patient portal. And it's all going to connect and just to make everyone healthier. And we also created an advisory. So we wanted to do what the American Dental Association did for toothpaste they never say Crest is better than Colgate, but they say neither of these toothpaste you're going to die from, right? They're going to say they're, they're, they meet the qualifications of a decent toothpaste. That's what we wanted to do for apps because there's so many apps. Just say, hey, I don't know if this one's better than this one, 
but they do meet the FDA's qualification or they meet the medical journal's qualification on what's a decent app. And that was the whole thesis of the business a little too soon um, because, again, no iWatches, people really weren't that connected to their devices as well. And this is like 2012 going into 13. So it was early. It seems like you uh, you know, put your whole uh, career to be ready for a pandemic. It's everything. I mean, you're, you are so spot on with it. Everything I'm doing is like, what can you do sort of remotely? But one of the things I just want to tell you that's fascinating, because we were just talking about Haptic, the way we were able to grow the business very similar. You're doing a podcast now, and I'm the biggest fan of podcasting. After I sold my company and we started Haptique, I had, and this is a great message for any marketer out there. I had trouble getting meetings with like the CEO of Aetna, the CEO of Qualcomm Life, the CEO of all these companies. I was this little startup trying to do something different. So I started a podcast, basically called Health Tech, you know, and not the same name as our company, Haptique. And I asked people to be on the show. And three things back then that no one asked you was, how big is your audience? Where can people hear it? You know, and why am I doing it? They're like, you want to interview me? Sure. And the craziest thing is after I interview, if I interviewed you, Mark, two things would happen. You would promote it. And your company would promote that you were going to be on the show. And then two, if I called you three weeks later, you wouldn't look at me as this vendor who was trying to call you, you would go, hey, you're the guy my wife or my husband said made me sound good on that internet thing. And that was really cool. And then the third thing it did for me by accident, I knew nothing about the space that I was in outside of how I wanted the technology to work. People thought if I can ask 12 intelligent questions that I was an opinion leader. So then people started to ask me to be on their shows and speak at their conferences. And it created great notoriety for my company. And I think the only reason we were probably able to grow it and sell it was because we had all these micro influencers out there who thought we were experts in the space. Yeah. You know, it's so interesting, you know, that you talk about, you know, that uh, on the podcast, because, you know, I started this um, podcast. It, really, it's more of a hobby than mm -hmm. anything. Okay. Um, when I was at uh, Steve Madden for a number of years, there was a fellow who was our, uh, my tech partner. And, you know, he and I were kind of, you know, good together. We spoke at conferences and we always thought, hey, maybe we would do a show together. It never materialized. And then, you know, it, right before the pandemic uh, started, I guess, uh, you know, the winter right before, I kind of put together this idea of of doing the show. And and my wife said to me, you know, geez, you know, you're going to do this show. It's going to take a lot of time. Are you going to make any money out of it? And I said, you know what? I'm doing it more of as a hobby and more as a branding thing for Mark Friedman. And so now, you know, 69 shows in two and a half years later, it has introduced me to some people and allowed me, just like you said, to have conversations with people after they are my guest that I never likely would have been able to have had they not been a guest. So for anybody that wants to start a podcast, there's another reason for being. I think everyone should. Like When I was running Notified and we had over 1,500 employees around the world, started a podcast where I interviewed authors, only authors. But not authors like Tony Robbins, you know, you're, you know, you're worthy. Authors that I thought wrote really cool books and we'd present it and I'd send a lot of the books to the employees. But secretly it was like, it's my MBA. Every time I interview someone, I learn, I walk away smarter than when I started. And it was the great thing. So everyone out there, do it for whatever reason. But it's one of those things. I used to teach in the company a thing about social media. People should do, you know, 
go online once a week and give your not two cents, give 20 cents. Go and comment on 10, you know, tweets or LinkedIn messages or Facebook messages. Don't just like, you know, go out and do something or force yourself to go to a meetup or a networking event. And I hate them more than anything, but force yourself, go, I'm going to walk away from here with 10 cards and have 10 conversations. You might hate it, but at the end, it's a good thing. Get out of your comfort zone and do something. The world isn't going to come to you if you just sit at home and go, why? Why aren't I getting this information? Go out and get it. Great advice. And uh, I, I think also, you know, to the younger folks that listen to shows like this, uh, that's great advice. You know, the the power of networking. I, I always, people will say, geez, Mark, you know, you, you're a good connector. You stay in, in touch with people. And I've, you know, built this, you know, latter part of my career, mostly through, you know, networking and, and relationships that I've built, you know, over my career. The devil's in the details. You probably have heard that phrase time and time again in your professional life. Projects get started with great intentions, but you no longer have the time to pay attention to the little things that could make the difference between success and failure. At Details Interactive, you can discuss your business with a seasoned direct-to-consumer marketing executive who's helped launch and grow web businesses and integrate multi-channel marketing initiatives. Learn more at detailsinteractive.com. We've mentioned Haptique a few times. Uh, just quickly, what was Haptique and um, you know your exit there? So we we were all about prescribing apps and patent, and we kind of grew it to the point that we can grow it. And there was a company called Social Wealth that I think was eventually acquired by Cigna, and they were going to take it and grow it bigger. And um, I left and did a couple of ventures, did a lot of mentoring, sat on a few boards, tried to do a private equity roll-up of my own, and I also continued doing a podcast on health tech. And then, you know, had this opportunity of acquiring several companies, working with one of the largest private equity firms, Apollo, and they bought the company that acquired my company, West, in 2000, end of 2017. And I worked on the due diligence of buying a business from NASDAQ with them, which was their PR distribution business called Globe Newswire, their IR hosting business, which is about 3,200 IR websites, and their streaming business, which basically streams all earnings events. And I got my old company back and we built that. And then we acquired a virtual event company called InExpo in the same year, 2018. And we grew that company, you know, basically doubled in size in less than five years I was there. So pretty proud of that. Uh, before we we move on to uh, Intrado and and Notified, and obviously you've had, you know, tremendous successes. Failures, things that didn't go as well as you liked, um, yes. you know, always important to, you know, it helps grounding, right? Oh, listen, there's this um, VC company that I like in Boston. They're called 401 Group. And what I like about them, besides them being a really good VC, the reason they're called 401 is because Ted Williams batted, you know, 401 one year. And their thing is like, you know what? He made out six times out of every 10 times up. So if we get four out of every 10 investments, you know, that's a, a great thing. My whole thesis on it is, yeah, I've had a couple really good opportunities and a couple of good exits. And now I've had so many more failures, um, but you have to fail. You have to use the failure as a growth opportunity. You have to learn from it, even though you're probably going to make the same mistakes again, but you have to fail forward. You have to fail fast. 
and you have to readjust and understand that you're not always going to win and everything makes you stronger. I usually have a big picture behind me of two boxing gloves and people go, do you like to box? And it's one of the exercises I love to do. But the reason the gloves are there is you can knock me down, but I'm going to keep on getting back up. And that is like the best message I can give to anyone is learn from it and just move forward. You're going to make mistakes. But um, if you can't handle failure, you don't want to be an entrepreneur. That's it's point blank. There's no guaranteed success in anything. You could go work for a company and there's no guarantee you're not going to get laid off. There's no guarantee the company's not going to be sold. There's no guarantee. Have the built-in mentality that I am going to get knocked down every now and then, but I got to get back up and I got to get up stronger. Good advice. Um, take a, a digression for one second. You told me that you're training for a triathlon. Uh, that's been going on for a while, huh? Longest training of triathlon <laughs> in the history. So in 2019, end of 19, like in October, November, I said, I'm going to train for a triathlon. I was going to do it in May of 20. And then everyone knows what happened. And I never was a big swimmer. And I swam three days a week, rode, ran, got myself in total shape to do it. And obviously it was canceled. Then I was set to do one in September of that year. It was canceled. And then in 21, it was canceled. And then my son was getting married at the end of 22. So I couldn't do that one. And so my goal is sometime between May and June to run my first one in 23. So the longest training ever. But now I love swimming. So that's cool. And where do where is this triathlon happening? I am going to do one in Montauk in 23. Okay. Well, good luck. You'll have to come back on and uh, tell us how you did. Okay. So let's go back to uh, kind of early 2018, uh, this business uh, called Entrado. And so what was the progression into Entrado and what was that business model? So Entrado was West Corporation. They changed the name to Entrado after Apollo acquired it. Um, it was a publicly traded company, many thousands of employees, a couple billion dollars in, in size. They acquired it. That was the company that my company was sold into. I was working with another private equity company trying to carve out the little piece of business. Then Apollo bought it, was trying to buy a piece on my own with another private equity firm, trying to buy a business from NASDAQ that they had, which I just mentioned. Um, and then Apollo decided to put a bid on that. And then I worked on the diligence to put it together. And the goal was Global Entrado, think of it as a holding company. They have different businesses. But mine, the communication business, was a combination of PR distribution, third largest PR distribution company in the world. Think hundreds of thousands of press releases. Everyone reads a press release. We were one of the three largest. Um, there's another one owned by Cision called PRN. There's one called Business Wire that's owned by Berkshire Hathaway. And there's ours. And then there's IR hosting, which is really important. Every publicly traded company has to have an IR portion of their website, and they don't host it themselves. They use a third party. And then there's a streaming, something in common. Every publicly traded company four times a year has to do an earnings stream and has to broadcast it. So we were all about delivering mission critical communication, starting with the earnings side of it or the financial side for publicly traded companies. But it could be anything from delivering town halls and virtual events and marketing generation webcasts, webinars, which everyone does. And we kind of just built it and it was great. Offices in 17 countries around the world. As I mentioned, over 1,500 employees at one point. And I spent all of 18, 19, 
and the beginning of 20, basically on a plane every single week, seeing our employees. I don't believe you can run a company unless you engage with your employees, which is kind of fascinating that I run a company that's all about doing things virtual, but yet I live on a plane seeing you can't empower your employees. You can't motivate your employees unless you empower them and go and see them and spend time with them. You've spoken about how, you know, the businesses that you've been involved in, you know, kind of, you know, help to drive meaningful insights and outcomes for your clients. How do you measure, you know, are there KPIs involved in, you know, validating that you are doing what your customers think you need to do for them? Yeah. And everyone's KPIs are a little bit different. What's your ROI, right? So with our PR business, besides PR distribution, there's social listening and media monitoring that was tied into it. So we can tell you what are they saying about your brand, you know, on a podcast, right? What are they saying in blogs? What are they saying in New York Times? What are they saying on television? What are they saying on social? It's how do I use that information, not just for vanity? Oh, it was, you know, picked up X number of times. Did it drive business? Did it drive into the funnel? And one of the things that I'm really big on is how does it tie into marketing? Because to me, the marketing department of any company isn't like, hey, look what we did marketing. Marketing is a is a growth part of the business. Marketing is a lead gen business. Marketing is a profit center, if it's in my mind, if it's done right, right? It's more than just the top of the funnel, right? It is the bottom of the funnel. And all the PR tools that we do, you know, when you think PR and marketing are getting married every single day, marketing traditionally was earn, paid media and PR was earned media. Well, guess what? Today, it's all media. And however I get a lead to close business, that's what it's about. And you can't have one without the other. Earned media looks like news. Um, looks like something important. Looks like ability for someone to socially post and micro-influence it. And well, this is a marketing show. So you all know marketing. How do I get leads? How am I paying for it? Where am I going to advertise? Where am I going to put my message? But they all have to work together and the data has to come together. And again, PR used to be all about vanity matrix. Hey, look, we got an article picked up in the Wall Street Journal. Did it drive any business? Did it drive any revenue? Did it make our stock go up? Did it make our CEO look you know, like an opinion leader? You have to put all that together and you just don't just do it anymore. We're recording, you know, this show in middle uh, December uh, 2022. Uh, obviously, the economy is uh, has taken a, a turn, you know, south. Um, what are you seeing in in deal flow? You know, you're you're involved a lot in private equity in your space. Listen, I think private equity has a lot of dry powder, which means they still have a lot of cash. It's just the debt is more expensive, right? So traditionally, a private equity deal, just for people who don't know out there. If someone was going to buy a company for $100, they probably will put $40 of their own money down and get $60 of money from the bank, you know, at low interest. That's normally how it works. I mean, there's all different models of it, but that's how it works. Debt is more expensive. So theoretically, when you buy a mortgage for a house, same concept is when it was 2% interest, you get a lot more house. And when it's 5% interest, you get a lot less house. So I'm finding that the recession that we're in is slowing down the process and people are not doing the same kind of, we'll call them unicorn bets. I am betting on a billion dollars. I don't care about revenue and profit. I just care about growth. And I think what's changing and you can see it in the public markets is guess what? End of the day, 
like, like a young entrepreneur out there, you got to make money. You wake up every day saying, how am I running a business that's going to lose X dollars or millions of dollars or hundreds of million dollars a year? You're starting to look at, like, I got to figure out how I'm going to build a business that's sustainable, that's not just a, a rocket ship that maybe will take off. Interesting. What uh, takes most of your time these days from a, uh, a business perspective? I'm doing a lot of advising and consulting with some companies and working on, you know, the ability of doing a roll up of several companies in the space working with a private equity firm. I, I ha think I have one more venture in me, Mark, that I am excited to do. Um, I might have two more, but I think I have one more that I could dedicate five years of, you know, a hundred hours a week and living on a plane. It's exciting. And I, I love where the world is now. When you think of what's happening in the world of AI, what's happening in the world of technology, what's happening in the world of communication. I think there's this brand new world in front of us and I can't wait to see what happens. And I want to be in the middle of it. Very cool. You are an author as well. What's what's the matter? You know, you're an author. Tell us about the book you wrote. And, and really, I'm more interested. Are you going to write another one? I'm thinking of writing another one. And this one came by accident. I'm an accidental author. First of all, everyone probably has on their bucket list. I'm going to write a book. So I was contacted by Wiley Publishing in, say, April of 20 during this you know, lockdown. And we owned one of the largest virtual event companies and streaming companies in the world. And I, they said, hey, you ever want to write a book? And I was like, absolutely, that'd be great. And I go, how long does it normally take someone to write a book? And think a book on average has about 45,000 words in it. Um, and, I, and I go, oh, most of our authors take six to nine months to get a book. And I'm like, awesome. And they're like, no, since we're in this pandemic and it's a hot topic, this is April, we need it done by middle of June. So then we can get it to an editor, get it back to you beginning of July, get it to the printing company in August and have it out in September. And I'm like, oh, I have like six, seven weeks to do it. And they're like, yep. And I was like, sure, I should be able to do it. Every morning I would wake up at four o'clock in the morning and I'd write for two or three hours. And Gabrielle, who's my co-writer on it, she was writing. And then at night we'd exchange what we wrote. And um, it was the most cathartic and painful um, and loving experience because like having a baby. I kind of recommend it for everyone on the longer point, not the shorter. And um, it felt good to actually have something that came from inside me that was out there. It's like, I'm really proud of the book too. It's a great sleep aid. I always tell people, read it. I guarantee you're going to sleep. But I see, I can see one day that in classes, people will be reading like, how do you put on a hybrid event and a virtual event. It is something that's going to be important. So, yeah. Well, it's it's incredible how uh, you know the world has changed. Whether it be you know remote work or you know I I work mostly remotely today. Whether it be on Zoom or Teams or you know whatever it is. Um, and you know we've realized that you know certainly we can be effective. Uh, it's not necessarily a long term replacement for being in front of your employees and your colleagues. And you know still you can't see the body language. Um, no, right. And if you and if you really want to grow, as you you can't mentor someone if you don't see them. And it makes me think back as as I'm talking to you. We grew, we brought up our kids in a town called Westfield, New Jersey, and you and I commuted to the city, and we were on like somewhere between a five and six a.m. train every morning, and probably on a six or seven p.m. train every night coming home 
five days a week, three hours of our life was spent commuting in a day time when Blackberries were just starting, right? That was the beginning of our, our commuting time. And I, I don't think a lot of people want to go back to the thing five days a week, commuting for three hours round trip and losing that productivity and losing that time. But I'm like you, I'm an office person. I want to see people and I want to engage with people. But at the same time, what's the work-life balance for them? Yeah, totally agree. Well, look, this was uh, great catching up, uh, really good insights for uh, for even the seasoned people uh, that are listeners uh, and certainly for the uh, younger people earlier in their career. Uh, so we do this uh, two-minute drill, uh, one-word answers, uh, seven questions. You ready? Yep. All right. A brand that you admire or that inspires you? Apple. Favorite app on your phone? Spotify. Last website other than Amazon that you shopped from? Remarkable. And I bought the Remarkable tablet. Okay. Something that you're not good at, but wish that you were? Meditation. Yeah. <laughs> the, the meditation starts and I can't wait for it to be over. <laughs> I can't do that. A charitable organization that you're passionate about? Bring change to mind. What is? They build clubs in high schools. For mental health, um, Glenn Close started it. Kids have a place to talk to kids, and it's run by the kids, and it's such a remarkable charity. I like it because we all were kids or have kids, and they need someone besides their parents or a therapist or a teacher to talk to. They want to talk to each other. Good one. Like that. Haven't heard that one before. If you had one superpower, what would it be? Oh, that is a real good one. Healing. Okay. Other than family, what's your most prized possession? my health. Okay. Uh, Ben, uh, I know you're out uh, on LinkedIn. Where can people reach out to you on social media? It, just follow me on LinkedIn. It's Ben Choder, C-H-O-D-O-R. Um, really big. I'm big at engaging. If you send me a note, I will respond. Yeah, way to go. And yes, he does, folks. He does respond. So, hey, Ben, it was great to see you. Uh, really good story. Um, really excited that um, you know we've uh, maintained friendship for now almost thirty years. Uh, it's great to see the successes uh, that you've had. So congratulations! Thank you, Mark. And great podcast. I've been listening to many episodes. I don't think I listened to all sixty nine. I think I'm probably twenty five, thirty in. But really good. Good job. Well, thanks very much. Uh, good to see you. Talk soon. That's it. Today's game ball goes to Ben Choder for coming on the Marketing Playbook. To me, today's three game-winning marketing plays were as follows. Number one, get out of your comfort zone. As Ben mentioned, the world's not coming to you. You need to go out and get what you want. Arm yourself with the skills to network and then use those skills to meet the people that will help you achieve your goals. Number two, founder syndrome is real. As an entrepreneur, you're developing your company for the most part to exit. But once you do, you'll sometimes find that losing that baby is hard to deal with. The feelings are normal, but focus on what you could be next and what that exit will allow you to do. And number three, fail forward, fail fast. Ben used the description of the boxing gloves on his wall that keep him grounded and make him realize that you're going to take some punches, but you have to be able to get up. We all fail. Even the great Ted Williams failed. But use each of those failures as a learning experience. Thank you, Playbook Marketers, for listening to another episode. If you want to check out more pages of the Marketing Playbook, make sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast spot 
and leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter at Details Interact and learn more at detailsinteractive.com. Until next time, the devil is in the details. Mm-hmm.